If you have a Bible, open it up to Joshua 22. Before I dig into that, though, I just want to say uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to get away last weekend and spend some time with some friends in the mountains. It's very refreshing for me just to be in the beauty of God's creation. I love that. And also, all of that time on the trail is great time in prayer. So uh, a lot of you were on my mind as I prayed uh, and sweat. So thank you. So we've been in the book of Joshua since October, uh, working through all of these wild stories, a lot of wild stories. And for the past couple weeks, we've really been flying through the book. Two weeks ago, I talked about uh, sort of the the wrap-up of the conquest segment of the book of Joshua. I looked at three and a half chapters worth of that, and conquest closed at that point. But it wasn't because of Joshua's strategic cunning or the military might of Israel. Joshua 10.42 tells us why. They were so victorious. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land one at a time because the Lord, God of Israel, fought for Israel. God was fighting for Israel. Much of the land was subdued, but not all of the land. I have a a map you should see, uh, kind of, (laughs) in pink, that shows you what Israel had subdued. And then there's a, kind of on the... the, uh, there we are. Along the coastline and coming in in, the, in that area, there is still land unconquered, so they have, to, they have to continue fighting and battling. But Joshua is getting really old, and they know that he's not going to make it to see all of this through. He's not going to make it through this final phase of conquest. And so knowing this, God wanted to assure the Israelites that he had not abandoned them, that his promises held, and that Joshua wasn't the key for those promises to be unlocked, but that God and his promises and trusting in his promises was the key. His promises wouldn't fail. And so to drive that point home, he has Joshua allot the land, even though all of the land wasn't conquered, and he spends, uh, this allotment goes from chapters 14 to 21, which, which Russ covered last week, thankfully. And, and he did a tremendous job. I listened to it afterwards. So this land gets divided up between all of the different tribes. And then at the end of that lengthy passage of allotments, in chapter 21, verse 45, you get these words, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. So Israel didn't possess all of the land yet. And yet, God's Word tells us that every promise related to the land had come to pass. The land was theirs. It was theirs. They just had to go get it. So this verse, it's a statement of worship, of praising God for completing the promises, for fulfilling the promises, for establishing his promises. And then the book of Joshua, with that verse, shifts into its final large segment, which has to do with right worship of God. So you've got conquest of Israel, of of the land of Canaan. You have 
the allotments of the land, and then this final phase, which we're getting into today, right worship of God. So we're going to, it's my intention today to step through chapter 22 and take it a segment at a time to unfold the drama of what's going on. It's kind of a strange story in some regards. But I want to show you that God is concerned for unity in worship above, above everything else for His people. Unity in worship over especially unity in appearance. So, before we get into our passage today, let me pray once again. Father, we thank You for this Word that You've given to us. We thank You that we can look here and see truth, see who You are, learn something about You, learn something about how You want us to be. And I pray this morning that we would learn these things and that they wouldn't just be nice pieces of trivia or something to add to our religious archives, but that You would really change our hearts to motivate us to know You and to love each other, to be a people who look like You. Father, help me to speak with truth and give us all Your Spirit that we might hear Your Word. Pray, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, one more tiny bit of review. There are two and a half tribes that have chosen not to settle in the promised land, but just outside, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And so you see them on the east. There's the Jordan River. This thing is going. There's the Jordan River. So you've got Half of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, and I will refer to these as the Transjordan tribes. So they chose, it's so important to, to remember this, they chose not to settle in the promised land, and, and God, through Moses, granted this request. All right, chapter 22, we're going to read some of it. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and so... Uh, I encourage you to follow along, even though your version might be different. Follow along with me. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, as he has promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth 
and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. So this is something like Joshua's farewell address to these Transjordan tribes. They've, they promised, before they even entered the promised land, before anyone entered the promised land, they promised Moses, and later Joshua, that they would go with their brothers, the other ten tribes, into the promised land and help fight help subdue the land. And when that was complete, they would return to the east of the Jordan and to their land of rest. And so they had completed their promises. They fulfilled their obligations. And they have been faithful to God in all of this. And so with great blessing and encouragement, Joshua releases them from their obligation. And he says, go back across the Jordan, return home, go rest, settle And they go. And before they go, Joshua gives them that one final charge. And I want to read it again. It's so important. Look at verse 5 once again. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, this charge is at the very center of the Israelite identity. It's the center of their worship. It's the center of their covenant with God. It's what makes them a covenant people. And it comes from the great Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You are probably familiar with it. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Love God with everything that you are. Love God and obey God. They go hand in hand. In the Shema from Deuteronomy and in Joshua's charge to these Transjordan tribes. So if they want to remain a part of Israel, as they go out of the promised land, if they want to remain a part of Israel, they must love God and obey God to be a covenant people. But it's not obedience out of duty. This is not Obey God or else you're out. Joshua wants them to live in obedience. God wants them to live in obedience because they love God. Because they have seen God as a treasure, as a joy. And He is good to them and faithful to them. His many graces already poured out on them when He released them from Egypt. These many loves that God has poured out on them in response to this love, out of the love that you have in response, obey God. 
And obeying God means that you, Transjordan tribes, should live mercifully, with justice, with love, with joy. Be holy. That's what obedience looks like. And it means that they would be like God in these respects like their father. To love God and to look like God is to be God's people. And so that's what Joshua is reminding them. As you cross the Jordan, as you leave this land of promise, don't forget God. Don't forget who you are in relationship to God. Don't forget your first love. Love Him, worship Him, and obey Him. And then with these words, the Transjordan tribes depart to cross the Jordan, to head home. But before they do, they stopped. And they built for themselves an altar. Look at verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, An altar of imposing size. So it's a huge altar that they built. Big enough that it could not be missed. Big enough, very likely, that they could see it from the other side of the Jordan River. So that when people walk by, they stop and they look at this thing and they say, what on earth is this doing here? In fact, the Hebrew makes it very clear that this was meant to arrest people's attention as they passed by. Notice, though, it's not called a memorial. We have seen many times now that Joshua or the Israelites build memorials. This isn't called a memorial, it's called an altar. An altar is for sacrifice. An altar is for worship. And this has potential for some major problems. God declared that there should be only one place for worship. Only one altar. Only one place for sacrifice. In Leviticus 17, verses 8 and 9. Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. The only place for an altar for worship is at the tabernacle, which at this time is located in Shiloh. The altar is placed directly in front of where God's presence was to be most manifest on earth, and worship was to happen in front of him, symbolically. Sacrifice was to happen in front of him. And these trans-Jordan tribes built another altar, Well, if that's true, then they are not truly worshiping God. They are blaspheming this God. They are are wandering into idolatry. They are worshiping some God of their own making because the God of Israel says you build altars at the tabernacle. There's only one altar that has been built at the tabernacle. And so what they are doing seems to be an offense worth cutting them off from the people of Israel. Israel. 
Joshua had just reminded them, obey God, love God. What are they doing? Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 15 tells what should happen next. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of, that, of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true that certain and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Building this altar is a serious offense with serious consequences. These Transjordan tribes, if that's what they're doing, they need to be put down. They are to be cut off from God's people. And that is exactly what the other ten tribes are recognizing. Look at verses 11 through 14. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel... Mm. I'll stop there. So they heard about it, and they are ready to make war. Notice there's a language shift. The people of Israel isn't now all the people of Israel. It's only talking about the ten tribes. As if those Transjordan tribes have already been cut off. The ten tribes assemble in Shiloh, the place of true worship where the tabernacle is, before the presence of God, before the true altar, They pick up their swords and they are ready to go forth and judge the Transjordan tribes. They are ready to do to their Israelite brothers what they have already done to the Canaanites. But before they bring this judgment of the sword, which is very harsh, they send a delegation to find out what's going on which is in accordance to what we read in Deuteronomy. They were to send people out. And so, look at verse 14. 13 and 14. Then the people of Israel sent out the people of Re- sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. So they send this delegation to find out what's going on, to investigate. They send the son of the high priest, Phineas. And Phineas has dealt with idolatry before. There was an idolatrous rebellion that happened before they crossed over into the promised land, where they worshiped in, in Peor, where they worshiped Baal. 
and Phineas leads the cleansing of the Israelites after this idolatrous worship. So he is zealous for true worship for God. He is the right man for this job. And with him go a representative, one from each of the ten tribes of Israel on the western side of the Jordan. So they send this out. In verses 15 through 16, they confront the Transjordan tribes. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, except you guys. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in the turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even <coughs> excuse me from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? That you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So the delegation confronts them and, and they say, How could you do this? How could you do this? Didn't we all suffer when Achan sinned? When people turned away to worship the Baal of Peor? And all the congregation of Israel suffered consequences because of these fools' sins. How can you do this? And then the delegation makes this amazing, beautiful appeal. Look at verses 19 and 20. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and the wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone, oh, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. When the delegation is talking about the land being unclean, the Transjordan land being unclean, they're talking about it being sinful land. Land that tempts them into sin. Maybe the inhabitants there would draw them into idolatry. If the land there is too difficult to live in, come back with us. Come back on the, the right side of the Jordan River. Come back into the promised land. We will give you our land. Live with us. Live within the land of promise. Do not abandon God for false gods. The ten tribes, they don't want to kill their brothers. They want to extend mercy. They want to help them. They want to bring them back. These are the people of promise. These are covenant people. 
We're to help them live in that covenant, in obedience to God, in love, in loving relationship with God. They want to be there for them. They want to remain one people. For if Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh go on sinning, they will die in that wilderness. And now look how the Transjordan tribes respond to the delegation. Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows, and let Israel itself know, If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so, to to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. The Mighty One. God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord. This this can be translated as saying, the Lord is the greatest God. Reuben, Gad, Manasseh first respond by saying that Yahweh is God. There is no other God. He is the highest. He is the greatest God. And if they have done this idolatrous thing, if they have committed sin by building this altar, then cut them off. They offer themselves to be sacrificed. If what they set up was a false altar for sacrifice. But, that is not why they built the altar. Verses 24 through 29. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion portion in in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offerings, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So you see, they did not build this altar for worship or sacrifice of any kind. They set up the altar so that everybody would remember 
their relationship to God. They never want to be cut off from God or from God's people. More important than the land, more important even than the promised land, is their relationship to God. So they're acting with great wisdom, these Transjordan tribes. They know full well that the events of their day will soon be forgotten. And they know full well how people are bent to look down on one another. How easy it will be for future generations west of the Jordan to say those eastern tribes are not in the promised land. Therefore, they must not be covenant people. Therefore, they cannot worship with us. They have no portion with us. And then they would begin to look down on them, to despise them, and ultimately to cut them off. And so to prevent this, the Transjordan tribes have built this altar. That those... And, and this altar, it just said in passing, is a giant replica of the one altar before the tabernacle. So they built it so that both people on both sides of the Jordan River for generations to come will remember that these two and a half tribes are indeed covenant people, the people of God. They are worshipers of Yahweh. Now look at verses 30 through 33 with me. When Phinehas, the priests, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, there should be an abbreviation, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned to, uh, from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. So this delegation returns back to Shiloh, where the rest of Israel is gathered with their swords, ready to go out to war, and they give them this this report from the Transjordan tribes. And everybody is glad. They drop their swords, and they are free from punishing their brethren. In fact, it says that Because this wasn't built to worship other gods, that the Transjordan tribes had delivered all of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So they are glad. Understatement. They are ecstatic. Some commentaries even said that there's this sense of euphoria among the ten tribes of Israel this rejoicing, and it turns them immediately to erupt into worship. They bless God, and this spirit of worshipful elation kind of overcomes the ten tribes of Israel. Israel will not be broken. God will not enact judgment. God will be honored that some of His own people have not turned aside. They will all stay one covenant people. 
And it is after this unification, this joyful worship, that the Transjordan tribes name the altar. Verse 34, the people of Reuben and Gad and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. They named it witness. I told you that this story was kind of weird. Because this whole chapter is a big miscommunication. It could easily have been avoided, it seems. So why on earth does God put this in the Bible? It is not a throwaway story. There's something in here that is incredibly valuable for us. Something that I think we need so badly in the church. Three somethings, actually. So first, there is only one altar of worship. There is no other. Only one place where sacrifice for sins is made. No longer does it reside in front of a tent or a temple. He resides in the hearts of those who love Him and follow Him. He resides at the right hand of the Father. There is no other way to come to God in worship but through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. All other paths are paths of idolatry, are false altars. They all lead to judgment. And God knew how prone we are to wander down those paths to those false altars. So to show us the true way, He took on Himself. He took on human form and became a man from Nazareth. Jesus ended the need for an altar. He ended the need for animal sacrifices. He became the final sacrifice once and for all. Jesus, the Son of God, lived perfectly as a man. He took all of our imperfections, all of our sins and brokenness up on the cross with Him. And there He died with all of our sins. In agony and in shame. And with his death, the penalty for our sins died. And he rose from the grave to defeat death, to make eternal life available to all who believe, to all who believe in Jesus, the only way to God. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 1.12 To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
There is only one altar. There is only one way to worship God. Through Jesus Christ. And He will give you the right to become His children. To become children of God. If you believe in Him. If you receive Him. If you love Him and follow Him. Come to Him. And He will give you life. The second thing that we can learn from this story in Joshua is that we need to not be concerned with appearances, but with the heart. The Transjordan tribes knew that they did not dwell in the promised land. They were not in the right location, so to speak. So they were subject to ridicule, to drift, and even to ostracism from the other tribes of Israel. So when I say we need not be concerned with appearances, I do not merely mean how we look. I primarily mean with those who seem to have it. It. They seem to have this Christian thing right. They seem to worship God in the right way. They play the right music. Their doctrine's the best doctrine. Sometimes I feel like it might seem to us like we are looking across the Jordan River at Pentecostals or at Presbyterians. We need to agree on certain tenets of the faith, right? We need to agree that Jesus is everything. Our sacrifice. Our substitution. We need to agree that God is one in three. And that He has given us the Holy Spirit to come dwell in our hearts. You know, we need to agree in certain tenets of the faith. But then there are other little things that people disagree on. And we have a tendency in the church historically to look down on others who might disagree on those more minor doctrines. Like what do you do with spiritual gifts? Or what do you do with the end times? Or Arminian or Calvinist or, you know, the list goes on and on. Isn't what a, it isn't important what they look like. It's important what Christ looks like, what God looks like. And if we're worshiping the same God and the same Christ, then what's important is we come together as one body because we will all one day be worshiping God before His throne, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. If they truly worship the same God, by knowing and loving Jesus, by living to follow Jesus, to live like He lived, then they are the people of God. So we do not despise them. We do not look down on them. They have a much, as much of a share in the promises of God that we do. And as many of you know, there is this growing movement in the Mohawk Valley 
to do just this, to come together as one people and worship God and pray to God, different denominations, different practices, different languages, different cultures. We love the same God and we all want the supremacy of Christ in all things, though we look different. And so, I think it's up here, February 24th. Come, gather with us. Worship and pray together. What a practical way to live out what is happening here in Joshua. A way to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The third and final thing I want you to see from this passage. I want you to be concerned for one another here and in a Pentecostal church, but we fellowship with each other regularly. So I want you to be concerned with each other here, to love each other. You know, the Western tribes showed incredible concern for their Eastern brothers and sisters. You all know their relationships, the spider web of relationships here. And I hope that you know about some struggles going on in each other's lives. They could be physical struggles, but more profoundly, spiritual struggles, real hard struggles, doubts, sins, wrestlings, we all have them. You can see, I hope you know each other well enough to see when a person's actions begin to betray a wandering heart. The ten tribes saw this, or they thought they saw this, And they were willing to give away some of their land, their promised land, for their brothers and sisters, their own allotments. This is a huge offer, a huge sacrifice they were willing to make. What are you willing to sacrifice for the people in this room, in this church? I mean it. What are you willing to sacrifice? If this... I feel a soapbox. (laughs) If this is a pep rally or some sort of spiritual self-motivation thing, you're in the wrong place. This is a covenant people. The people of God And we're here to love each other and to sacrifice each other for each other. (laughs) Let's not sacrifice each other. Let's sacrifice for each other. (laughs) Perhaps that was God bringing me back. So the consequences of leaving God, the God that we love, are phenomenally terrifying. 
And you and I should be invested in each other's lives enough to see when somebody is slipping or moving in that direction. So how do we sacrifice and love for those people? How do you do it? I can stand up here every week and talk about it, but I want to know what it is that you do. Ephesians 4 is clear. It is my primary responsibility to equip each one of you for the ministry of the church. That means it's your primary responsibility to minister to one another. I, some might call me the minister, but the Bible calls you the ministers. You need to be ministering to one another, loving each other, sacrificing for one another, being concerned about each other's spiritual state. In fact, Ephesians 4 goes on to say that the reason any one of us is going to reach spiritual maturity is because we're invested in each other's lives. And it seems like the tribes of Israel understood this on some level and they were willing to give away their land, their promised covenanted land for their potentially wandering brothers and sisters. How are you loving the people in this body? When we do love each other like that, it's a beautiful thing. God is seen, the source of, of worship, the source of our worship is seen and is glorified. You know, perhaps, John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That, is, that does not mean if you have love for all people. No, no, no. If you have love for these people, the people of Christ, if you love one another, then all people will know everywhere that we are disciples of Jesus. By how you care for each other when you struggle. By how concerned you are for each other's spiritual maturity and holiness, by how you enjoy each other despite your differences. Oh, that we would love each other well. So one, Jesus is the only way to worship God. And all else is an idol. All other places of worship are idolatrous. Jesus has his arms wide open, ready to receive everyone to come and worship. Two, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ that are not a part of this body, though they look different from us, because we are unified in the body of Christ. We are all covenant people. And three, we are concerned with the people in this church in loving them and sharing our lives with them and sacrificing for them that they might grow to love and see Jesus more fully, more deeply and become like him. And in this way, in this way, Jesus will be seen all over the world. Let's pray.
Father, I love how you use an ancient miscommunication to teach us about how to love one another today and how to love Jesus. Your word is good. And I pray it would change us. And I pray that through your word, seeds would be sown. Seeds already sown would be watered. That fruit would be born in this church. That we would be a place, a body of believers where your love is expressed in us, through us, towards one another, that all the world might see Christ as incredibly valuable and precious and joyous. Use this body of believers, Father, to exalt the name of Jesus and help us to love one another because our differences and our preferences and our abilities are so weak and limited. Thank you, God. You're a good God, and we are grateful for the way that you have loved us. Even when we have not loved you, you have loved us. We praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.